I have been talking about the many roads that Jesus traveled. So come, let's go travel with our Lord Jesus Christ on the dusty roads, whether it be the roads of Galilee or whether it be the roads that he went through. I want to say this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, simply talks about the voice that cries in the wilderness. And you find the Lord Jesus Christ, his first trip was in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 and so forth. But then there's also, you find the olden days, the roads were what would be local roads, nothing like this that we have, simply dirt roads. And it, is very, it was very difficult to traverse in those days until the Romans came and they did a marvelous job in terms of communication, particularly roads. Then they were able then to pull in more equipments, soldiers marching and the horses and chariots and so forth. But however, the roads before it became highway were just simple roads and Jesus walked those, uh, what would be the side streets, what would be the country roads. And then of course there was the highway, simply that is high and way. So there's a way that simply was made high, like we have a highway, only thing this was filled with gravel, this was filled with dirt and a little high so that it would be above water. But there are times when these would be washed away and, uh, and it was impossible to traverse through those roads. But Jesus hit most of these roads, whether it is the highway or whether it is the interior roads, reaching people, all types of people, and preaching the gospel or the good news and talking about the Father and how the kingdom of God is within and the kingdom of God is at hand. The second we have been dealing with is the road to Samaria that you find in John chapter 4 and verse 4. We haven't finished with that as yet. The third we will be talking about, if we have time, uh, it is from actually Luke chapter 10, verse 25, when a lawyer asked a question, of course trying to test Jesus, and in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, he talks about a man going by the highway from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that comes across one of his own experience in going to Jericho, traversing those very streets. Again, you have some very powerful uh, travel with the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly when you think about his latter days and some of the greatest lessons or what would be uh, sermons and teachings come from Mount Olivet. So it's on his way to Jerusalem. You can find that from Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 and verse 2. Then you have the road to Calvary. That's a culmination, the very purpose, the reason why he came to this earth. And you can read that in Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. But then you're going to find Jesus is still, after his resurrection and ascension, still on the road with people traveling. And you can find on the road to Gaza and the amazing testimony and the wonderful revival that broke out in Samaria. You can read that in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, 27, verse 28. And then, of course, you remember the seventh one is the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to literally a man who was totally against he was what would be in today's world an extremist, and you find this man, Saul, on his way to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, verse 2 talks about it. 3 tells us on his way to Damascus. So I want us to introduce what we are doing about this on the road and the studies that we want to do. We embarked on what would be the road 
to Samaria. And chapter 4 of John and verse 4 says, he must need to go to Samaria. And I talked about number one was uh, basically tackling a social problem. Now, I want to just say this. This is a situation we are facing today. And unless you uh, come to know what people are facing, particularly people of color, you would not really understand. You would not be, you would be just making a judgment call until you realize what takes place and the pain and the hurt they go through. Here is Jesus reaching out to people that otherwise the very religious Jewish people would avoid. And I would talk about this, I talked about the social problems. But then you also, the other S is the spousal problem. And of course, I talked about not simply marriage between two, but it is the great marriage between Christ and the, and the church. Thirdly, I talked about the spiritual, and what I want to talk about, and what I did was basically from John chapter 4, 23, 24, 25, talking about basically the woman uh, suddenly becomes very religious. It is innate in everyone. Uh, a sense to worship. There's a vacuum. But her question was, is it in the mountains in Gerizim, or is it in the mountains like you Jewish people would do? He, she's saying to Jesus, in the mountain of uh, Jerusalem or in the Mount Moriah or Zion. Very interesting. Jesus says that our is coming and is the Father worship, seeks those who worship him in spirit and truth. So let me just put a remark here, no more a place, a specific time. These are important, but literally the importance is not on a building or a structure. Thank God for buildings, but let me just say this. The early church, unlike what would be sophisticated uh, temple in Jerusalem, they met even in the worst of the places like the catacombs, and that is literally not a place. Uh, it's a pungent smell. It reminds you of death, decay, so forth. But they had a tremendous revival, not in some fancy places with great fancy uh, places uh, to uh, take photographs with, but literally they were able to worship God in the dumps. But that is how the church began. But again, I'm thanking God for the beauty of cathedrals and the churches and the architecture. These are all wonders. If it's possible, there's no harm. But the situation we need to understand is not on a mountain, not in Jerusalem or in Gerizim, but literally in uh, spirit and in truth. So we define that. Worship is very important. Somewhere along, the Samaritans had lost the pearl of worship. And you can read the story of the northern tribe of Samaria that had estranged from God. And they replaced it with some calf down in the southern, in the northern sector of a nation called Israel. But the southern Judah still concentrated on what would be the correct place at that time in Jerusalem. But then again, in the time of Jesus, he made references saying that they're only worshiping me in their lips and not in their heart. So worshiping the Father in the, through their lips and not from their heart, and this becomes really uh, what would be a reality in the midst of pies, in the midst of all the temple works that we can see today in churches with all the rituals and with all the religiosity, and yet the pearl, the diamond of worship is missing. 
So we wonder why, because not just Samaria, but coming down to Jerusalem, the absence of true worship, yes, the form is there. Yes, all of the implements of worship is there, but worship was missing. And so Jesus is saying that time is coming, or the hour is coming, and it's now come, and there's a searching. Here's a woman searching, very deep in her heart. Here is Jesus searching for someone like her to give her the truth, and there's a Father in heaven searching for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is the missing diamond, the missing jewel for this hour as well as until Jesus our Lord returns. Incidentally, when you go to the Bible and find out what happened, where did they go missing? You can find that in several books, whether you take Isaiah, whether you take Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Let's just take Jeremiah because I have some passages from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 5 talks about what takes place. It says, Thus said the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me? And then he goes to talk about it in verse 11. Go on to see what he says. Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then when you go to verse 13, look how this is. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed from cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And then again, when you look at verse 20, look at the indictment. In verse 24, Of old I have broken the yoke and burst thy bonds, said the Lord. I will not transgress when upon every hill and under every green tree thou wanders and plays the harlot. 21, again he is saying, Yet I planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Oh, what a indictment that is simply they have walked away what is the reason uh, he tells you in chapter 2 and verse 8 listen to what he says he says the priest the folks who were designated to teach they said not where is the lord they did not and they that handled the lord knew me not they themselves did not know me the pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by baal and walked after the things that do not profit. Somewhere along, there was an exchange. They may not have done it all of a sudden, gradually, and while the water was simmering, they didn't feel it was gradually getting hotter. And before you know it, they already exchanged the true living God for a form of a God that was not God. And so by the time you come to the time of Jesus, he's coming there, and they miss the greatest visitation. And that is what you find in Luke chapter uh, 19 and verse 44. But let me just say this. What about the church? It's a sad indictment because when you look into the pathway that we travel with Jesus, listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 10. Here is a wilderness, but here is what God is saying in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 10, that there's an ensign. Go through, go through the gates, prepare either way of the Lord, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out of stones, lift up a standard or ensign or a sign for the people. Obviously, you can read the book of Isaiah to find out every now and then the signpost, you can see that on the streets, 
10 miles, so it would be 200 miles, so where's the destination, where the road is heading, where the road is bifurcating. These uh, becomes in signs and signs. But you read that in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. What is the sign and year in chapter 11, 10? And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign or a sign of the people, it shall be the Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Oh, what an amazing God. But when you look at all of this, what exactly happened to the New Testament, to the church? It did not take 500 years. Within that 100 years, things begin to happen. And if we're not careful, we could actually exchange the goodness and the greatness of God to what would be images or what simply would be form but really the absence of the power of God. But you know, when you look at what our Lord Jesus Christ spoke to the messenger that would be in Ephesians, he really points out what they have lost. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, 3, 4, and uh, verse 2, 3, and 4, and we'll come to know this. Here is the Lord Jesus saying to the church in Ephesians, I know your works tremendous works. I mean, you talk about the good works they do, whether it be in terms of solical, counseling, reaching out, this is good, or whether it be in terms of outreach, social, the downtrodden, helping out, digging wells. These are commendable. And he says, I know the works you've done, and I know your labor. Now, excuse me, one is work, but then labor is the sweaty, difficult. One is work you do, but the labor is simply, even though it is difficult, you've gone beyond and you have labored. So I know your works. I know your labor. Those are commendable. And this church in Ephesians had some tremendous works, tremendous labors. And among the laborers, chief of them was Paul, who started the church. And then you have John, the beloved, the apostle, before he was thrown into Patmos, he was the pastor there, and after he was come out of Patmos, he continued to be the pastor there. In between, you had Timothy. Now, think with me for a moment. Three great men, great apostles. They pastored that church. So you can understand that they have tremendous works. You can understand that there has been a lot of labor and laborers. Then he says, I know your patience. Oh, this is amazing. This church in Ephesus living in the city of Diana, the temple of Diana was considered the one of the seven wonders of the then known world. Amazing. But they had to be patient with a whole lot of ungodliness taking place there, superstition, black magic, you name it, they had it all. They had a potent for everything. You want love, you get that. You want hate, you get that. You want to backbite, you get that. You want to destroy someone, we'll do some incantation. Everything was there in that city of Ephesus. Then again, it was one of the great Roman colony of what would be the Eastern Front of uh, the Eastern Empire. But then he goes on to say, and I know how you cannot bear them which are evil. They have a, a sensitivity to good so much they could determine or they could understand what is basically counterfeit and what is true. That many people don't have. Uh, they had that spirit of discernment. And that church really knew what was good, what was bad, what was right, what was wrong. 
amazing church. And then you would not, I know your works, your labor, patience, and how you could not bear them which are evil, and you have tried them which say they're apostles. Not every folk that come and wears the little hat saying apostle, um, basically they tried them. They tested them. You see, oh, but you cannot test them. Only the word doesn't need to be tried and tested, but everyone else that speaks the word needs to. So you need to check the reference. You need to check the passages, and this is very important. Are they really speaking their word, the word of God? And so he says, you have tried them, say they are apostles, and are not, and you have found them to be liars. That's a great work on your path. Not many others would do it. They were very great speakers. They moved people. But listen, you all went through and looked into the intent and really by the, the word of God you were able to know like the wise Berians that you find in Acts chapter 17. Going to verse 3, he goes on to say, and you have borne not simply what would be patience, but you had such endurance and patience for my name's sake and labored again and has not fainted. You're not given up. Everything around you, even the spirits of those Diana, were against you. The men and the army and the Romans and the people from the synagogues were against you. I mean, you had to bear them. You all had such endurance. And the Lord is commending them. He says, I take my hat off for you all guys, amazing guys. That's a church we should be so glad about. But in verse 4, nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of all of this, which are good, which are commendable, I have somewhat against you. This is what I want to say this. Because you have left your first love, uh, we use the word lost. No, 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 it's not lost. They simply left their first love. In other words, exchanged the love, their first love, and put someone else or something else. And so the Lord became number two or number three or number four or number five, but he was not number one. What I want to say this, my friend, a church is a church. Despite good works, labor, contending for the faith, despite doctrines that are right, and despite testing and going in through the crucible to find out who is genuine, who is false, going through the whole thing of sensitivity to holiness, and yet, having done all of this, they threw the baby with the wash and the bathtub literally lost the essence of what the church was. Anytime good works, good labor, good projects, anytime any social work or anything else takes the place of the Lord, they have left the church. They have left the Lord. They have left their first love. Just let me repeat this. They have things that are very commendable. Fine preaching, fine music, fine choir, fine uh, system. They have everything that people come so refined and well-attuned and prosperous. All that is good. Nevertheless, you have left your first love. There was a time when they loved their first love with such intense honeymoon love. It happens to everybody. Individually, 
or collectively, corporately as a church. Jesus is speaking his heart. Nevertheless, you have left your first love. You know, one of the things you find, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, is a very powerful word. And Jeremiah is speaking. We had talked earlier about what Jeremiah said was the reason for the nation falling away from God. But he says, stand you in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we shall not walk therein. Their heart got just hardened. They were religious. I mean, they would die for the temple. They would die for their religion. They would die for the anything that uh, is, uh, they would think is a sacrilegious. But somewhere along, they lost their first love. Stand, he says, in the way. Ask for the old path. You know, this old path has become a revival theme, especially here in America. And there's a lot of evangelists that says, we need to go back like it was 200 years ago. I don't mean go back 200 years ago. Uh, for many people in America, 200 years going back wasn't all that pleasant. They were slaves. They went through hardships. So when you say, let's go back, let's go back, we need to go back into the old days, there's a large number of people saying, no, we have arrived, we're not going back. They go, why do you want to go? You go back, but we're not coming. Understand this, my friend, the old ways is not what it used to be in America 200 years ago. I understand there was family, I understand there was respect, I understand, but I mean, let's go back to where it all began. Back to what would be the genesis where it all began. What did God intend from the beginning? God walked with man. God fellowshiped with man. Man fellowshiped with God. We're talking about that. We're talking about the way it used to be, the marriage, the way it was, love the way it was, kindness and affinity the way it was before. There was sibling rivalry and murder. What was God's intent? So you find the book of Genesis is the principle of first mention. So let's go back and find out. And then go from there onwards to find out. Not talking about an American history or an African history or an Asian history. We're looking at the Bible history. Go back to what God's intentions were from the beginning. So we're not stuck getting stuck to some 100, 200, 300 years. We're going back to explore the Bible to find out what was God's intention. If it was, and if we did, there would not be hate and there would not be tension. Jesus came to show us the way. He is the way. Jesus came to show us the truth. He is the truth. Jesus came to give us, show us the life, and he is the life that gives salvation to us. Now... Very interesting. Here in this chapter 6 alone, Jeremiah talks a powerful truth. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 5, listen to what he says. He says, uh, Jeremiah 6, oh, let us by now, let, no, let's go down to verse uh, 8, verse 8 if you would. For thou, be thou instructed. The first thing he says, you need to be instructed to know the truth. Then verse uh, um, 10, let's go to verse 10. We, it's a whole lot. Whom shall I speak and give warning? And then he goes on and says, Not I can be all the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. The word of the Lord 
It's a reproach. Uh, they like entertainment. They like all the excitement, but it is the word is a reproach to many people. When you turn to verse 11, again, he's a, let's go to verse 50. We don't have time. Verse 17, 18, and 19. Verse 17, uh, I have set watchmen over you, saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. They said, we will not hearken. Verse 18, look, he says, therefore, you nation, know, O congregation, what is among you, the truth that you held on to. Verse 19, here, O behold, I will bring evil upon this nation, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened to my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. Let's go back and find what we have lost. In verse 20, look in what he says. Chapter 16, verse 20, he goes to the next. To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba, all these ritualists, and the sweet from far country, your burnt offering not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. So let's go back to verse 16 of chapter 6. Simply, Jeremiah is saying, stand in the way. The most important thing is having done all to stand. We don't need to go through scriptures. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. And having done all stand. Stand in the truth and contend for the truth. Because the truth is being exchanged for fancy for things of a pulpiting, jumping up and down, and all the colors, and all the screaming, and all the excitement. In the midst of all of this, are we letting the truth slip by? Don't lose the truth. And I'm not talking about simply papers and creeds. I'm talking about the one who is truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to understand a very important thing is he's the first love. Again, it's very important. Stand, stand, stand. You know, Paul is telling us the essence of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at how he says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians verse, uh, 15 verse 1, wherein you stand. That is where you stand. And he tells you how Jesus Christ, he came, he died, he rose, and so forth. You're standing on that truth. Many people think it is too simple. Uh, that's why you get a lot of uh, false teachers giving you complicated message, like uh, the Word of God is so complicated. The more complicated it gets, only they know what they're talking about. Utter foolishness. But I want you to know sometimes, many a times, you have to go through dictionaries to find out where did this come from. They took a passage, it took, and voila, they got a new doctrine. Never, never discard the simple truth that even a child can understand. It's very important. You know, when you go into passages of the scriptures, you find, I think it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. Stand. And he says, stand worthy. It's very strong language, like a soldier that stands and will not move from the post. When it comes to the love, our first love, we must be steadfast. Nothing and no one can ever replace. Never make anybody, not only your pastors, your leaders, your first love, not even the book, not even anything, your pet doctrine. Never leave your first love, never exchange your first love for anybody. Back to chapter 6 and verse 16. Number 2, not only stand, but it says, ask for the old path. Ask. It shall be given unto you. You know, 
One of the greatest revival that took place when Judah was backslidden was in the reign of a young king. And the thing that he realized at a young, he had a great teacher, and uh, he said something is missing in this nation. Of course, there was prosperity, there was blessing, but he said something is missing. And he told the priest, go in and search the temple because we need to find out what is it that we are missing. And when you turn to 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8, they find it. L literally, the people of Israel are discarded. I'm talking about the priest. And Hekah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hekah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Can you believe it? They had all forms of what would be ritualistic religiosity, what would be Sabbath keeping. In the midst of it all, they may even have carried something on their back saying, this is it. They didn't have the law. They just had some parchment. The intent of it, the baby is missing. We come to celebrate, and the person that we come to celebrate is missing. We come to worship, the person is missing. And again in verse 13, look at, listen to what happens here. And so in chapter 22 and verse 13, it comes to the attention of the king. Go ye inquire of the Lord, the king says, and for the people, for me and for the people and for Judah concerning the words of this book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all which is written concerning us. We have left our first love. We were not instructed well. They never told us the truth. They just told us prosperity, you're going to be a billionaire. But they never told us not to leave the first love. You know, when you look at going back to chapter 6 and verse 16, there is one more, and it simply says, you shall walk therein. So this is important, you shall walk. Going back to the principle of first mention, Genesis chapter 5, verse 22, and Enoch walked with God. That could not be done. That has never been done since Adam and Eve before the fall, after the fall. But again, this man just believed he could walk with God. And he walked with God. You can read that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Look at the way that Paul is saying. He's saying to walk, beseech you that you walk worthy of the professional call wherein you are called. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 is talking about walk in love because God is love. And so he's giving us powerful inscriptions of how we should walk. So, and then in verse 16 of chapter 6 says, and you shall find rest to your soul. Jesus is saying, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come unto me and I will give rest. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 says, there is a rest for the people of God. So, we have come to Samaria, and here is Jesus talking to what would be, in the eyes of a religious person, a Samaritan. In the eyes of a religious person, a woman. In the eyes of a religious person, a prostitute. Here is the Lord standing before someone and he's asking, give me water. I want you to understand this. The Lord is turning us back to what man and woman were originally meant to be. She was put down, she was pulled down. Hey, you take the measure of our fault, all of us have in some way or the other. 
She in this way, many of us in the other way. Let me remind you again, the sin and the worst of it, if you want to measure, is the sin of pride. It's in everybody. From the preacher to the bishop who screams out and down, everybody is tainted. And they don't. nobody ever has come to me and says, Pastor, I have done the worst sin. What is it? I have pride. They told me about cigarette like it's the biggest deal. Somebody said, you know, I've really fell and committed adultery. But you know, end of the day, nobody came to me and said, like Lucifer, I have fallen. We measure people in decimals of man's estimation. Oh, that is not to say we should condone it. If we should stone someone, we should start with the prideful people. Jesus had many woes, mainly to the Pharisees. How does that measure? Jesus is reaching out to the least of this and bringing it to the highest position. But let me close with a real love story. Ralph Emoldo Emerson said, the world is looking for a great love story. But did you know that the books that sell is all about love? The movies that sell is all about love. If you don't have love, you won't have a box office hit. So you have to bring in that essence of love. Of course, then the ethos and pathos of love and the breaking of heart, whether it's in New York or whether it's in Peking or whether it is in uh, Africa or Asia, it doesn't matter. It's a story of up and down. And then the woman wants to cry and not eat. The man wants to jump off a bridge. Oh, but love does strange things. But I want you to know the greatest love story in the Bible, it is not a bestseller. People don't read about it. Excuse me? If I name you a book that is called The Greatest Love Story, it's a love story of God telling his choicest servant to go in and marry a woman from Samaria. Excuse me, a woman in Samaria? Yahweh, El Shaddai tells his choicest servant, Hosea, read chapter 1. Go down and marry Gomer from Samaria. I don't know what's wrong with this guy. He's a fresh prophet, a fresh priest, a fresh pastor coming out. What an assignment! He's telling us the greatest story. The greatest story ever written. It was so beautiful. He met this girl. She was pretty. They laughed. They cried. They hugged each other. They had their romantic relations. They had their twist. They had their honeymoon. They went here. They went there. And then before you know it, one day she's pregnant. And that's not his child. He says nothing. Excuse me. God in Osea and Osea in God. Then, Lord, she has another child. That's not his. And then she takes off, and God says, pursue her. By now, she's a slave. Throw in all that you have and rescue her. God, are you sure this is the El Shaddai I'm talking to, Yahweh I'm talking to in the Bible? Yeah, that's the God of the Old Testament. You say he's a rigid God, he's a passionate, passionless God, he's a God of passion, if you only knew. And here, this man in negotiating. Nobody wants her. She's worth not a dime. 
She gives her the highest price so she would know her worth. They said, what's wrong with you, man? We just discard her. She's used. She's abused. Take her for nothing. She says, take this money. She's worth everything to me. Shows her love, and she would not respond. He pursued her. He reaches out to her. The story of Ozia is so incredible. It's unbelievable. It's the story of God's passionate love for his people who have walked away. And he's willing to pay any price. And we're talking about like the New Testament, the Old Testament of a prophet, of a priest, going, getting married to a Samaritan woman. Uh, historians have a hard time so the number one, they say, it's actually a spiritual because the northern state with the Samaria is spiritually broken up. Okay, spiritually left their first love. But then others say it is physical. It's real. It's real life. It's not what you call allegorical. It's the real. There's a real man called by God, goes and marries this real person from Samaria called Gomer. Spiritual or real, I think it's real, it gives us a great lesson. You know, I forget the man's name. Cobble Campbell has written the story of a man that he knew from Chicago, a young man, in one of his days visiting the green grass, uh, the bluegrass uh, areas of Kentucky. He fell in love with this lovely girl and uh, married her and brought her to Chicago. Wonderful life together. And then something happened to her, or some experience when she went out, or whatever took place. She suddenly changed. She became a frightful creature, screaming, shouting, and all lots of crazy stuff. But he kept loving her. It's hard. And kept doing all he could and then somebody says, maybe you should take her down here. He took her. Maybe she should go down into the waters of so-and-so. He did that. But it did not change. And finally, after all this, somebody said, why don't you go back to where she came from? Maybe going back to her old country, she would come back to a sense. So he said, fine. And he went back to Kentucky with her. And she was able, but she wasn't paying any mind. But for some reason, she was sullen. She was quiet. So now driving back long hours, she's really tired. She's gone to sleep. She had never slept like this. Uh, she would jump up and scream and shout. This is after a while this has gone on until on, a, on, a, on the way back home to Chicago, finally reaching, she went, basically said, I'm tired, I'm going to sleep. And she slept like she took whatever rest she didn't have, she took, was rested. She woke up. And he was looking at her, and he said to her, where were you? It looks like I've gone on a long journey. It looks like I've been there for many days, I don't know how many months. And he said, sweetheart, I've been with you, holding your hands, loving you every moment of the day. I want you to understand, my friend, Mrs. Gomer, or it would be this Mrs. Samaritan, God of the Old Testament, 
the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament goes to Samaria and here is a Samaritan, a woman what would be literally a prostitute. Ha, huh. this is the difficult part. For every passage in chapter one, he's speaking about the prophet and Gomer and in chapter two, he says to Israel, you are the Gomer, you are the adulterous woman committing whoredoms. Excuse me? He takes the reality and then brings it to the nation. You're looking down at her? You are the reason. You are like Gomer. Chapter, chapter, verse six, chapter six, he says, in three days he will revive us. But I want to just close with chapter 14 and verse one to five. You can read the entire chapter. This is what God is saying to the nation now. In chapter 14 of the book of Hosea, listen to what God says, verse one. Hosea, chapter 14, verse one. O Israel, return unto the Lord your God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. You have left your first love. But I didn't leave you for a single moment. Verse two. Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously so we will render the calves of our lips. Verse three. Ashur are the gods that we exchange for. It could be uh, films, it could be politics, it could be your favorite sports. That could be your Ashur. Ashur has not saved us. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in thee, in thee the fatherless find mercy. They were fatherless, they were orphaned, they didn't know that. Verse four, I will heal your backslidings, I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. Jesus visits Samaria. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. My friend, I am that Samaritan. You are that Samaritan. I don't know which way you want to look at somebody. We are them. And them is us. We need to get back to our first love. Help us, Father, to get back to you and to love you always like the day we came to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.